Welcome to the Final Word Podcast, I'm Mike. And I'm Lewis. And today we are discussing poetry. We've got an interview with the poet and lecturer, Andrew McMillan. Yeah, and we've also got poets reading out from on the course. We've got Lou Reed Foster, we've got Tanya Goovey, and we've got Amina Atik reading out poems later on. And me and Lewis are also going to discuss our experiences with poetry. So we're going to be doing things a little bit differently today in regards to our discussions of uh, poetry because unlike prose, where we've studied it and read it widely-ish, <laughs> yeah, uh, and felt like we were comfortable enough to talk about it with poetry, it's something a little bit different. Yeah, we're a little bit less experienced, I think you could say, yeah. with poetry. So, yeah, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to talk about our experiences on the creative writing course here at John Moore's. Yeah, so basically, in, f- in the first year of the course... Everyone has to do um, a module on poetry, prose, and screenwriting, mm-hmm. and it's one of those where a lot of a lot of people on the course they start out with a set idea of what they want to do mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to it. And I I'd never really gone into poetry, but there was other people I talked to like that the same who are now finishing no, yeah, wanting finishing to become poets. poets yeah. yeah, so I think poetry more so than the other two, in my opinion, anyway. Is, is one where when it finds you, it finds you. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. You can hear that as well in our interview with Andrew McMillan, where he talks about how poetry, when he was about 15, just spoke to him and became the medium that he wanted to write in. Yeah. It, it's Basically, that's why we're doing things a little bit differently this uh, today, because we don't feel like we're... Although we appreciate poetry and we yeah. have read it on the course... We just don't feel like it's found us in the way that it's found the people that are going to yeah, be speaking on the podcast. Yeah, or we don't necessarily have the experience or knowledge to discuss it properly. Yeah, what makes poetry strong or weak or yeah. anything like that. We just we think we'd be generalising. So we've left it up to Andrew, who we're going to be interviewing in detail, and we've got three readers this time instead, um, who, will, who we also interview before they read yeah. on why they write and how poetry found them. So hopefully we can give you more of an insight on what poetry means to the people... Who wrote that, it? Yeah, who, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So we'll now take you into the interview with Andrew McMillan. Yeah. So then, we've got Andrew McMillan in today, poet, winner of the Guardian First Book Award, shortlisted for all sorts of other awards, and a lecturer. Uh, JMU, welcome to the Final Word podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so to begin with, I'd just like to ask, where did writing begin for you? So I wrote a lot when I was a kid, but I think all kids do. I was kind of had the rare luxury of growing up in a house where my dad was a poet. And so I just kind of had a house that was full of contemporary poetry books, which is a really rare thing. Yeah. Um, and so I just kind of grew up reading it or knowing that it was a thing that someone did, which I think is some a lot of people's barrier to it. They yeah. don't quite know how you might do it or what it really is. Um, but then I ran away from it for a long time. I was going to be a politician. I was going to be an actor. Because I just kind of really didn't see myself doing it. And then when I was about 16, 17, started reading again, started writing again. And it just turned out that, that was that's just how I want to enter the world. That's mm-hmm. how I see the world, really. So, has it always been poetry for you? You've never thought about prose or screenwriting or anything like that? No, like mainly poetry um, or kind of like essay, kind of like non-fiction mm-hmm. stuff. Um, I tried last year to start writing a novel, but it was really bad. I got 10,000 <laughs> words in and nothing had happened. 
and I thought oh, this is not great. So, you know, something needs to happen. Yeah. But I kind of didn't want it to. So I thought, oh, maybe I'm not a novelist. So uh, would you go back to that? Maybe, like it's on my laptop, kind of like, and every yeah. so often I kind of bring it out. My main motivation really was that I thought it'd be nice to have a hardback book because, mm. like, poetry is often kind of paperback. <laughs> but then um, they're doing like a Norwegian version of physical mm. that's going to be hardback, so I feel like that oh, wow. kind well, of there itches, you go. but that kind so of itches that itches been scrapped. Right, yeah. it's okay. So I've read um, your, your piece that you did in the Guardian about Tom Gunn. Yeah, yeah. And what what is it about him that connected with you so it's, much? Do you think? I think he was just the first writer that I really fell in love with. Mm. And I think everyone's got this writer who... They're not necessarily their favourite writer, but they're the writer where they first kind of thought, wow, that's it, that's really speaking only to me. Mm. Um, And I came out to my parents when I was 16, and they gave me that night, kind of came into my room and gave me a copy of Tom Gunn's collected poems (laughs) and said, I think you should read this. and so, because of kind of the time of my life and everything like that, I just kind of really felt this intense connection to him. Because he'd already dead when I started reading. Yeah. There was also the sense in which I could never quite meet him. And so the poetry is kind of the only kind Wait, of interface I can really have with him. Yeah. yeah. So I've read that you, you wrote that there's no biography of him or collection and no. criticism of his works. Is that something that you would want to do? Oh, it takes so long. It mm. like 20 years. I went to a conference in San Francisco at the end of last year that kind of gathered up the people that are kind of obsessed with Tom Gunn. And there are two books. There's one PhD that someone published about him and one collection of essays, and that's it. And it always just seems remarkable to me that, you know, you look at how much is written about Ted Hughes or mm-hmm. Philip Larkin, any of those kind of guys, and Tom Gunn just kind of sadly quite ignored. But hopefully I wanted... To, I want... There's something that I think I could write that is kind of my love letter back to Tom yeah. Gunn and I just I keep talking about that with people and it just hasn't I don't I don't know what it looks like yet but mm. I'm, it's something I'm kind of wrestling with in the background I think do you think his wider acceptance is that do you think that's partly because he's a gay poet and I think people a lot of don't, th- don't connect maybe I think a lot of it's to his subject matter and certainly although there's this weird thing where so he's born in Kent in England moves to San Francisco in the 70s um, and starts taking LSD and starts writing really weird kind of trippy poems. And so the English establishment kind of fall out with him in the sense that they feel he's too American. Um, And he's always slightly too reserved and kind of austere for the Americans Americans and too English for the Americans. And so he kind of sits somewhere in the middle of the ocean and nobody really wants to claim him. And I think that's that's had a massive effect on his reputation. But also that he died fairly recently, it was only in 2004, and that oftentimes there's kind of a quiet period after someone's death, mm. and then the, resurgence the kind comes. of resurgence in maybe 10 years. But he left behind these brilliant archives, his old lover's still alive, he came to this conference and can kind of talk about Tom, but he left um, kind of all his manuscripts, all his kind of reading set lists when he did reading, so there's, and daily diaries, there's a lot that someone could kind of have a go at. But I just think it'd be a lifetime's work because there's no, there's nothing to build on. You're mm. starting from scratch. And you've got other stuff you want to do I first. Just, yeah. 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 Um, and I think it needs and the money that it would cost as well mm. would be staggering because you'd have to go and I think live in San Francisco for yeah. a while. You, you said that he's got archives in Berkeley, so yeah, yeah. Obviously, you'd have to have access to that. Yeah, and I mean, these archives are kind of open to the public, but um, and they're organised. Um, in terms of kind of what's in them, but no one's really gone through and kind of just 
the scope of them is so massive mm. because there are these daily diaries that then have yearly summations. There's the diary entry that he wrote the day that his mother killed herself when he was really young, and he kind of chronicles how that was for him. There's astonishing stuff in there. Um, that I th- and kind of fan letters that he was getting from people, letters that he was sending to people. But just the size and the scale of it, because there's nothing to build on. You can't say, oh, well, someone's already done this work, so then I can do that. That you'd just be starting from scratch, and it'd be some. It needs to be a lifetime project for someone, and I'm not, I'm not that person. Mm. Okay, so going back to you, mm-hmm. you studied uh, creative writing, uh, BA at Lancaster University. So what? Why did you choose that course? Yeah, so I did well. So I did a. My degree was mainly in English, and then I had a minor in creative writing. So I just kind of did one class a week, which was mainly just kind of a workshop thing where you take work in and get it served. But I just. I knew that I still wanted to be reading kind of critically, mm. and that's still something that I enjoy doing. So I knew I wanted to do literature, but I also knew that I wanted to write, and the so I the, so that I didn't want to go to Oxbridge because they wouldn't offer me a kind of creative writing yeah. course. And so then it was just looking around at kind of who would, and I just thought it was in the years before nine grand fees, so it was still expensive, but there was still a sense in which I just picked something because I liked it, yeah, and just thought I'm just going to go and do this for three years. And it was having that luxury of not then thinking, oh, but what if it doesn't lead to anything? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's why. And so then you did your MA in creative writing? No, it's my MA in modernism. Oh, uh, okay. Um, at UCL in London, part-time. So I graduated and kind of went freelance and was doing kind of community writing workshops and stuff like that, basically to self-fund um, doing this master's degree. So, yeah, my MA is in... Um, it's got issues in modern culture, so it's kind of about... Um, the very niche thing of like um, English modernist literature, basically, okay. and how that interacts with society. <laughs> so you said you did community projects and things. So how how did you make the decision to become a poet? How did that come about? I thought, I mean, again, what I was very lucky is that I'd seen my dad do it for kind of 30 odd years as a full time freelance person. Um, and so I knew that it was a job. Mm. or that you could do it, which I think is quite a rare thing, yeah. again, to see. And I just thought, I've got genuinely no other skills. Like, I try, I worked in shops when I was, like, in college and stuff, and I was terrible. Like, the till would always break, or, like, the shelves would fall off and things. I used to work at Toymaster, and I used to work um, at a clothing shop that was kind of like a high-end clothing shop, and you'd go in and they'd say... Um, Right, you need to sell £10,000 worth of clothes today. And it was like in Sheffield in the recession, so like nobody was buying anything. Um, so I just decided, right, I've got no other skills. What can I do? I can write and I can communicate. I've got kind of a charisma that I can go into a room and talk to people. Mm. And so it just kind of happened accidentally, really. I kind of applied for one job when I was still in uni, which was to write poems about cricket um, for a kind of some money that was around at the Olympics. So I got that, and then that led on to doing some workshops. And it just kind of built up from there. And... Um, and so academia really is is still the same thing. It's still talking about language, but it's just hopefully at a kind of higher level yeah. than a lot of that community stuff. Okay. So you mentioned there doing readings. When when did that begin for you? And was it were you nervous when you did your first reading? Can you remember it? I think what my first reading would be. I think I was probably terrified. Mm. I'd done a lot of amateur dramatics oh, and okay. a lot of like youth theatre because I was that kind of kid. <laughs> um, and so I kind of was used to being on stage. And so the way that I got around it is thinking it's not me, because I'm actually quite shy. So it's not me, it's kind of like a performative version of the self. But I think I did, 
I entered a competition that Huddersfield University ran and didn't win, but like got on the shortlist. Mm. And then they said, oh, we do an open mic night in Leeds. Do you want to come? And I was in Lancaster, so and there's no money or anything. So I got, you know, got the train over, got the last train home, kind of spent loads of money on the train and just read one poem. And I think probably did it very badly. And then there was just a couple of things, like I had a poem in a magazine in London and they said, oh, come to the launch. Mm. And at that point, I was just saying yes to anything. Because I just thought it's just experience or people yeah. see you. Um, and then eventually when I got a first pamphlet, um, with a publisher up in Newcastle, they kind of set up a couple of readings, um, and it's just grown from there, really. Um, but I love it because it's such a solitary thing. I enjoy being in front of an audience, and I like making them laugh, and I like reading poems to them, and I like meeting them afterwards. Like I quite the social side of it terrifies me sometimes, but mm. I love meeting an audience and them coming to see me and stuff. And now that I'm more established, I feel much more in control of that, mm. so I can say what. So I you don't. Be, I don't want to speak to him. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, like take him away, please. No, but yeah. no, not that. But I mean, I can, <laughs> I can sort of say yes and no to stuff that I do or don't mm. want to do. Well, I think when I first started out, I said yes to everything yeah. and did some stuff that I didn't necessarily love doing, but did it a for the money, but b for the experience. Mm. Um, but also know now what makes me comfortable in terms of readings. I did a few when I first started out, and I've asked people to do these as well. Some people love it where you say, right, go and read a poem in Tesco, and no one's <laughs> going to know that you're going to do it, but it's going to be like a pop up thing, mm. and that terrifies me. Because all I want is I'll read to however many people you've got as long as they know they're coming to yeah. do a poem. Because otherwise... They're not prepared. Me, yeah, they're not prepared. They, they're not, they don't want it. Mm, and that, that's, not in the right mindset yeah, for poetry. Exactly. And some people love doing that. And that's the thing that kind of scares me. I've done some of that kind of stuff before. Mm. But now I just kind of know that that's not where my kind of comfort zone mm. is. So you said it was like a performative mindset. Did you have like a separation of Andrew McMillan, the poet, on stage? And yourself? I think so. I think um, I think you have to, because especially because a lot of what I write is quite personal mm-hmm. stuff. So you have to be all right with kind of going into a room full of 100 people, well, I'll say 100, like five people, <laughs> and then um, kind of going, right, so now they all know more about me than like my best friends mm. do. And you have to kind of become all right with that. And the only way I thought that I could do that was to kind of have this kind of persona mm. and have a kind of definite set list of what I knew I was going to yeah. do and to treat it almost like a kind of, a show like a show like a gig mm. and because as well you know even if they've not paid even if it's a free thing but oftentimes they've paid 10 15 quid mm. and they've chosen on that night or that afternoon to come and see you when they could have been doing anything else in their yeah. lives so your job and it is a job is to entertain them mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you have to make them laugh but the thing that really winds me up is at readings when people just look either like they can't be asked mm. or like they're just not bothered yeah. Or like they're just kind of going, oh, I don't know what to read next, and they're kind of throwing bits of paper out. Lack of lack of professionalism. Yeah, and I think it's a lack of respect for an audience because I think God, your only job <laughs> is to turn up on this evening that these people have chosen to come and see you. Yeah, they've. And it's not about you yeah. as a poet because they don't really mind. All they, all they, it's about the audience and what mm. they want. How can you entertain them? What do they want out of the night? And just trying to give them that, and that's your job as a kind of hired professional writer, really. Mm. I think. So, yeah, I, I can see what you mean, because, you know, people have, like, hired a babysitter, paid for parking, and travelled to wherever. Yeah, and, and you're, you know, and you're being paid, hopefully, quite well mm. to turn up and maybe read for, like, half an hour. Yeah. The least you could do is decide what poems you're going to read in what order and know how you're going to introduce them and know which poems... You know, some poems in the book I never read out because I know they don't really work. They're not loud, or they're yeah. too long or they're too weird. So I know which ones work. Mm. And I just think that's the job of... 
Was you that you trial and error, or did you know when you were writing them? Trial and error, I think. Hmm. Or just kind of knowing which ones. Now, and I've got, because I've kind of stopped reading from that book now, because I've just kind of finished this new one. I've been saying no to a lot of stuff. Hmm. But I got into a habit of just kind of knowing what my kind of 20-minute set was, or what like an hour-long set was, and hmm. just read the same poems in the same order, and do the same jokes, whatever in between. Um, which becomes quite mechanical. But did, then, it, did it get a bit tired for you at any point? Yeah. yeah. I think that's why I kind of have stopped doing a lot of stuff this year, because I could feel myself sometimes in my head. And it's the first time the audience might have heard. Mm. So, you know, you kind of want to read them properly for them. But I could feel myself in my head. Like, I'd start a poem, and then, like, I'd be thinking what I'd have for tea, or, like, <laughs> if we'd booked the builder to come around and do something for the house. And then I'd come back into myself towards the end and think... Have I read all that? Or have I actually <laughs> missed a bit out? And it's really weird out of body yeah. experience. And I thought, if I'm not fully connected now mm. to these words, it's time to stop. Yes. Because if the audience just kind of feels that it's mechanical or they're not engaged, then mm. it's not fun for them either. No. So I thought, I have a year or so doing little bits, but not very much, and then hopefully come back in the next couple of years with something new and go, right, I'm back now. Mm. And kind of it can feel fresh again. So you said you've just... Have you finished your new collection? Hopefully. I've kind of um, kind of got the manuscript, um, so I just need to send it. I put to the courage to show it to my mum and dad, which was the scariest thing, because it's, it's a lot more personal and a lot more explicit than the first one was. Um, and so I kind of needed to show it there, and they were fine with it, so that was nice. So I'm going to read through it um, myself again, then probably send it on to my editor and see what he thinks. Is that something you've always done with your work? spoken to mum and dad about it or is it just because it of was the just nature? because it felt so like I can't remember like I think I was so excited to have a first book that I just didn't really care like, it only <laughs> kind of struck me afterwards that like people might read it mm. and that that might be kind of quite an odd thing and I think like say like I think my grandma just knows I've got a book and probably haven't read mm. it which I'm kind of more comfortable with but this one it was weird people kind of I think imagine that physical the collection was the first collection was kind of really explicit and it wasn't it was actually just quite intimate like mm. there's not very much about sex in it no whereas the second one there is much more but also much more about my childhood so it kind of mentions my mum and dad and so i felt i felt like i really should show it them i felt like they deserved to see it before my editor kind of locks it in so was it things that you hadn't said to them before you were talking it was about interesting i talked to my mum about it afterwards when i went around the other week and she said oh it's interesting isn't it kids have very Kids have private lives, so mm. everyone has a privacy to their life that you never know anyone fully. And I thought that was really interesting. And it's true, it's just that most people wouldn't then write, <laughs> write about it, it down. Yeah. It. Yeah. We said with physical, it's very intimate. Yeah. When it came out, did you get any backlash from people in your private life? No, all. You know what? I'd shown it to the two main exes that it's mm. about and sort of said, Look, read this. If you want, if you want to talk about anything, it's anything you're really uncomfortable mm. with. We can have a chat about how we can make you feel better mm -hmm. about that. Um, so I'm still on good terms with both of them, and they were kind of really fine about it because actually, I think I've come out worse than them. It's not a kind of bitter book, or mm. it's not a book no. that's kind of set up to revenge on anyone. I think I come out worse than anyone in that book, and so. But they were both fine with it. You know, they thanked in the back by name. Mm. Um, but in terms of, you know, I get. It's interesting. People feel like they know you much better than they maybe do because mm -hmm. it's such an intimate yeah. book. And so I often get sent kind of very explicit poetry, mm. just kind of unsolicited. That's interesting. Which is, you know, fine. But. Do you, are you contacted a lot by fans then? Like occasionally, not that often, <laughs> but when they do, they tend to send me quite... Um, explicit things right. all, uh, which is nice like I don't mind it mm. um, because it's them sort of saying oh, I see what you've done here's something that I've mm. done 
Um, Did that take some getting used to? Yeah, well, because I'm still amazed that anyone's read it. It seems <laughs> okay. weird. Like, no matter how much success it kind of mm. has, it's always amazing that to me that one person's read it. And so I still love that one-to-one interaction of, oh, I read that poem and I really liked mm. it. Um, yeah, and I still really love that. And I hope I always will. Like, I never want to become one of those old kind of embittered people who are like, mm-hmm. oh, I hate readers. Well, why are you a writer? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Mm. Um, but then again, this might be the peak of it. Like, you know, after this podcast, it might... It might all be downhill, not because of this podcast. No, I was going to say, uh, this is like I hope peak. we haven't done anything like that. No, like this might be, you know, the peak of it. Um, mm. Second book's always harder anyway, but so you just got to enjoy it. Like, God, it's a privilege that mm. any, you know, lots of people want to write. To get anything published is a kind of achievement in itself. Mm. To get with the publisher that I got is a kind of another minority, and then for it to do well, and that wasn't my... It didn't do well because it's a great book. It kind of just hit as... It kind of well, but it's not just that. It kind of had there mm. were other great books that came out that year yeah. that didn't do as well, and it's because it it wins one thing and it gets a momentum, mm. or it's got a particular subject matter that kind of strikes a zeitgeist, yeah. or yeah, it becomes part of the zeitgeist. So it's not a. I think it'd be very foolish or very dangerous to think it's because I'm amazing. It's because it yeah. hit certain mm-hmm. kind of things that happened at that time, and I think it could have come out in a different year against another set of books mm-hmm. and had a kind of different life. So how how's the success been? Has it been strange? It's been really difficult because, and that sounds really, that sounds no, 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 really no, no, no. like self-indulgent, doesn't it? I found it really, really hard, but only because it comes in these massive peaks and troughs that mm. are impossible to deal with. So you publish a book, and for, it came out in July 2015, and for the first few months, really, it was quite quiet. Mm. And he... Um, no one was really viewing it. I was doing a couple of readings, but it kind of takes time for it to filter yeah. through. And then kind of after the Guardian thing, which nobody really thought I was going to win, I didn't think I was going to win it. Well, um, first poetry book, which is a massive achievement. Yeah, like it was mad. And I remember they, they announced it on Twitter like five <laughs> seconds before they said it in the <laughs> Right, okay. And so like I could feel my phone vibrating <laughs> in my pocket. And I was like, oh, no, but I can't. It, it can't be true. And then they kind of said it and it, but then I also had to get on the train at five o'clock the next morning come and teach here, mm. which is, you know, always, does that, always a level. Does that ground you a bit, does yeah, it? Yeah, well, it does. And it was like, you know, normal life happens, but also that it comes in these waves of kind of quite... So say like the week after the Guardian thing mm. was just very intense. Mm. And so like I was getting all these emails all the time, which were lovely, going, well done, or do you want to do this? Because suddenly people who don't read poetry mm. were reading the book. Yeah. And so it opened it out and genuinely did change my life mm. and the trajectory of I think my career and people that were going to read the book but then there were also a lot of quite difficult personal things that were going on at the same time mm. so it was I was kind of getting phone calls about both at the same time and right. so it'd kind of be like all right you've just won this prize oh but all this oh it's on this shortlist oh the, and it's incredibly hard to deal with mm. because especially around shortlists and stuff There'll be like attention for a few days, then it'll go really quiet, mm. and there might be nothing for a few weeks, and suddenly there's something else, and so it's not a consistent level of kind of attention or acclaim or anything like that. It's these kind of peaks and troughs of it, and I never wanted to be famous, and writers are never famous, so I, th- I quite like that. Like mm. I never want to walk down the street and be recognised, but I find it. I'm not great yet at dealing with kind of like if I go to a reading, people wanting to come up and talk to mm. me. Like if I'm just in the audience at something else, that's the kind of side of it that I feel difficult but I'm incredibly like grateful grateful god yes. yeah like it changed my the stuff that happened with that book genuinely was life changing mm. in terms of my own financial position but in terms of like 
I feel more, much like where I am in the poetry community mm-hmm. and stuff like clout as it were yeah you couldn't have gone better mm. <laughs> really yeah I was just wondering if we could talk a little bit about projects outside of traditional poetry like um, yeah. like the cricket and thing and all the documentary did for the BBC with the railway nation yeah 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 I thought that was a really interesting thing and is that becoming more and more popular with poetry do you think I think poetry is kind of having a moment. I, don't, I think everyone in every generation says that, but I think certainly there's a real crossover at the minute between kind of performance mm. and then poetry and then kind of new digital media. So certain like film poems are really popular at the minute um, and things like that. I mean, like the Railway Nation thing um, was just really fun. They just literally, we sat on a train and they just filmed me kind of looking mm. pensively out of <laughs> windows for a while. And then I just kind of got off and had to write a poem and then go and record it. But, I mean, what was great about that, or, say, like, the cricket thing mm. um, and stuff like that, is that it takes poetry to people who think that, oh, it's not for them. Mm-hmm. Poetry is still, for whatever reason, kind of seen as this quite rarefied niche thing. Mm. And it's not got a massive readership compared to, say, popular novels. Mm. Um, but, you know, you do something like that thing that was on BBC Two on a Saturday night, mm. or, like, the cricket thing where you're taking kind of poetry to these kind of old cricketers. I love that, because suddenly they read it and they go, oh, I get that. Mm. I mean, I think... you. But what you have got to be, I think, is all right with writing a certain different style. So, like, I couldn't have written some of the stuff I write for BBC Two mm. at 9pm on a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just couldn't have. Or, like, there's no point me trying to write something for these cricketers that no, they you might not get. Like You write to the form. You've got to write to the form. And your job, if you're commissioned to do something, is to give... Again, it's like a service. Mm. You're giving them what you want. And I think some people fall down when... Or say no to stuff, and that's fine. Mm. When they think, I can't... I'd have to compromise my own artistic integrity mm. and stuff like that. I've just never had any integrity. <laughs> you said with the new digital media... Hmm. I find, I find quite interested with the so-called Instagram poets like Rupi Kaur and things like that. What do you think about that aspect of poetry? I think that it is bringing a new readership to poetry. Mm-hmm. I think that it was always the natural medium for something like Instagram because it's also had a boom in terms of design and artists mm. and stuff like that. I mean, what I what I hope is that that's then a gateway into them finding... Yeah, other stuff. I mean, because I think Instagram, social media in general is such a transient thing mm-hmm. that what I think it leads to oftentimes in poetry is glibness in the sense that it sounds profound, but it isn't really. Yeah, well, it's. I think it's the nature of social media in general. It's all surface. Yeah, there's not a lot of depth to these things because it's meant to be scrolled past. It's meant to be quick, and it's meant mm. to kind of focus on a certain attention span and things like that. Whereas some poets on a page might be asking you to kind of slow down and read. Closely, kind of, yeah, really yeah, closely. But I mean, I hope that it it brings people to, to poetry. Yeah, and I mean, God, Rupi Kaur's book has sold what, like three million copies, mm. and like was the New York Times bestseller. So I mean, <laughs> far be it for me to kind of disparage that. And it's a published kind of proper book mm. now. And all you hope is that people go, oh, I, I enjoy that, and I enjoy people writing about intimacy. Mm. Also, I'll go and read some Salima Hill. I'll go and read Emily Berry or something like mm-hmm. that in a way that it, you know, as a gateway into kind of thinking about deeper things, yeah. maybe. She talked a little bit about being having to be woken up at five o'clock to get to JMU yeah. after the Guardian Festival. How did you get into lecturing? Um, accidentally, as everything happens, <laughs> um, how did I get into lecturing? So I did that cricket thing. Mm-hmm. 
um, years ago. So when I first graduated, did that cricket thing, and that was for a company called iMove, who um, were the Yorkshire Armour, the Cultural Olympiad, which was the money that was given from by the government um, for the 2012 Olympics around kind of cultural mm-hmm. stuff. And then the guy who ran that recommended me to Sheffield Theatres, where I did a workshop on dialect. And then a woman who worked at Sheffield University said, oh, I've seen you doing this. Do you want to come in and do a class for my students? So then I could like get experience of lecturing. And then kind of from that, did a couple of the guest talks kind of off that. And then ended up doing a bit of kind of sessional lecturing at Edge Hill. Um, and then this job part-time came up hmm. um, about four years ago now. Um, and then I've been here ever since. I'm full-time now. But I kind of just fell into it. But it felt like the natural progression from kind of talking about it a lot in communities and kind of bringing that experience, but now kind of hopefully with a more academic kind of slant, I guess. So what what do you get out of lecturing then? Is it opening people up to poetry partly? or It's made me a better writer, do you I think, think so? selfishly, because, you know, we're sat in workshops and we go, you know, you'll know this, that you sit in a workshop and someone goes, I'm not sure about that comma. Mm. I think that, that that sentence isn't quite working. Then you have to go home and interrogate your own stuff mm. and go, well, actually, if I'm saying that to students, then what about my <laughs> comma on line five? What about my line that I've just written? And it's made me much, much more rigorous with my own stuff. I used to be quite kind of casual with mm. it, but it's made me a much, much better writer. But also just I love talking about poetry. Like, this don't feel like a real job. Mm. Like, you know, sometimes when you're doing kind of the admin side of it, it does. But, God, I get to come in, talk about poets that I enjoy, mm. and then watch someone... The joy of kind of watching someone from first year to third year mm. and kind of how they grow as a person, but also as a writer, I think, most importantly. It's just, like, a really beautiful thing to be able yeah. to do. out next for us we have Lou Reed Foster who's a poet he's also a student on the uh, BA creative writing course at John Moores hi Lou hello <laughs> um, I, I might as well ask you a couple of questions before you read out um, about where you get your influences from writing poetry um, the thing I write about most is masculinity okay. and its perceptions within working class areas in northern England okay. do, you, do you take it after anyone um, any poet in particular that's inspired you to do this? Or? Um, well, John Cooper Clark has been major influence, but people like Mark Doty, Tom Gunn, okay. um, Kate Tempest, like similar type of stuff, but in South London. Yeah. So I can sort of take what she writes and. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> well, why poetry? Why poetry over? I mean, you write prose as well, and yeah. you can, you're going to onto the masters as well. Yeah. Uh, why why poetry over any? What spoke to you about that more than anything? Um, well, I got into it because I was always into song lyrics by people like Nick Cave and Lou Reed and stuff like that. And then I started reading interviews by them and they were saying they were inspired by people like Charles Baudelaire and Byron. So I went and researched them and was like, oh, this speaks to me as well. And then you see who influenced them or who they were influenced by. And all of a sudden you've got this whole world of people who are writing amazing stuff that you never knew existed. And eventually you start writing your own stuff. Nice. Well, thank you, Lou. Um, next up, Lou's going to be reading two of his poems. Neanderthal. My uncle is a big bloke, former boxer, former bricklayer. Neanderthal, he says, I'm proud. I watch him shadow box his daughter in the kitchen. Eleven now, he says, old enough to be taught how to fight. Ornaments and knickknacks from North Wales are knocked from shelves as childish excitement builds. 
She takes to it and jabs my uncle's outstretched palms, a southpaw like her dad. My uncle sits exhausted and with tears filling his eyes, he says something about apples. Budapest a locking. With the CCTV switched off and the cash in the till counted, we slip 50 euros across the bar. Drinks are now free, but my mouth is too dry for beer. I take a coke and the fight starts. By the fifth round, they're sitting right behind us. They know we're tourists. Tourists have money. We don't speak their language, but some things don't need translating. We go to the toilet and shove our cash into our pants, leaving a few small notes in our shared pockets. Back at the bar, we ask to pop out for a smoke, and on the count of three, we run, barely bending our legs to avoid paper cuts. So reading for us now, I've got Tanya Goovy. So Tanya, could you tell us about what sort of poetry you write? Um, I tend to write poetry that breaks down certain stigmas, especially when it comes to women and sexuality. Um, it's something that I like to focus on and make a bit more normal in day-to-day life so that people aren't so scared to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So who whose poetry have you read that's influenced you in that way? Um, I'd say War Sanshire is a big influence. Um, Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth is one of my favourite reads ever, as well as um, Claudia Rankin, I think she's amazing. Um, Citizen was one of the big ones this year for me. Mm -hmm. So why do you write about the things that you write about? Um, I write mainly to get a point across or to make people feel comfortable or start a conversation about certain things that usually they're scared about or things that aren't usually talked about. So when it comes to like um, Claudia Rankin's Citizen, for example, she writes very freely and openly about race, about being black, about people like Serena Williams. And I think being that open and free, especially in this day and age, is quite rare. And yeah, that's, that's okay. why I write what I write. Well, thanks for coming on. And you're going to read us two poems then? I am indeed. Okay. Thanks very much. Roots. I sat next to an old man in St. John's today. Dead air fluttered between us. School kids darted through the park in a youthful hurry. A stiff khaki corduroy exposed his ankles, which rejoiced wildly in the brisk November wind. I only had seven minutes of my lunch hour left. He looked like he had all day. We got to talking. What's your favourite thing about Earth, he asked. I wanted to say you. I wanted to tell him about the strength that brews underneath the shrinkage of your nappy hair, how the kink in your roots is the key to your magic, how I remember you taking shelter under Sekuru's large umbrella, shielding your rich melanin from Chinoy's boastful sun, how even in the shadows you glisten, resembling the midnight sky but louder, taller. Yes, your tongue may be as sharp as sin. Who could blame you after that unfortunate incident with Mugabe's faction which cinched the sweet of your taste buds? In spite of the bitter and sour left behind, I wanted to tell him about your hands, the ones that raised two boys, four girls, the ones that pounded Sadza, 
put togetherness on the table night after night, the ones that grew rows in streams of shallots, sugarcane even repi, the hands that laid Sekuru to rest after 59 years of unblissful marriage. I wanted to tell him, but how could I? I only had five minutes left. You are a lifetime. Please can I have a man? Please can I have a man whose most romantic line isn't when I rise you shine. A man who only occasionally pays for dinner makes me do the DIY. But even in the crowdedness of a Bold Street cafe, stares at me as though there's a battlefield housing a war, a raging war, one just waiting to be one on the surface of my lips. A man whose smile only forms on the taste buds of my tongue, whose midnight moon peeks through the gap of my front teeth. Please can I have a man who snatches the last pork dumpling, but saves me the last bite of his pumpernickels toasty, because he knows their cheese is my favourite. Please can I have a man whose world begins and ends on the mahogany island of my areola, whose motherless fingertips trace the stretch marks that brand my hips, heading south, finding unexplored paths that lead to the tsunami roaring between my thighs, a man who at the crack of dawn, the morning after, our night before, refuses to kiss me goodbye. we have Amina and she's a first year on the creative writing course at John Moores and she specializes in poetry also. Hi Amina. Hi. <laughs> uh, I was just gonna ask before you start, before you read, uh, what inspires you to write poetry? I've, I've, I've heard you read out um, your poetry suits being read out. Um, what, what, do you feel it gives you a voice? Um, so why I write poetry um, I've always thought about that, and it's a question I always ask myself. And I think it goes back to the idea of um, my father being diagnosed with a mental illness. Mm. Um, we were unaware of it when I was younger, so I was more in I was more interested in the idea of human behavior and why we change, and that led me to question why our world is changing and this idea of questioning and when I was reading my old poems when I was younger I I questioned a lot why is this happening mm. why is this change so I believe that it does go back to some kind of something that's happened in my childhood and this idea of questioning my my parents why my father my my mother why my father's human beha- his behaviors changed and why things that he used to do with me and my brother He's no longer available. Obviously, now understanding that he's has been formally diagnosed, mm-hmm. um, I believe that is what triggered my writing. So I kind of like, when I was younger, I also loved reading, loved reading like the front pages of newspapers, and I'd come into school and I'd want to tell my friends, you know, about what's going on today, what's going on locally, but. No one was interested. The crowds around me weren't interested. <laughs> yeah. So when I entered into the world of poetry and spoken word, I realised there was an audience there who want to listen. 
So I started, I began to write more and I began to explore different themes and started reading more as well about the world. And now I'm just trying to understand more about myself as a writer as well. And obviously as a student, creative writing, I'm developing that, trying to find my own voice as well, as Mm -hmm. well as exploring world um, crisis and Mm -hmm. issues that's going on around us. Speaking of that, I saw you outside of St. George's Hall the other day. Were you, did you, did you yeah, read out? Yeah, I did. What, what was that in aid of? <laughs> um, I saw a lot of, there was a lot of people there, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, what, uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, um, well, the council, um, one of the council, and um, she was aware that I write a lot about um, refugees. Yeah. So she contacted me and said, would I be able to perform a poem about um, refugees and a loss of identity or acceptance? And I said, yeah, I've got a few pieces, so... I was given that opportunity. Was it nerve-wracking, or did you feel like because you were doing it for such a something you feel so strongly about, you needed to do it? Um, before I was told to come out and read, um, it was nerve-wracking. There was there was a lot a lot of people, and it's the first time to perform in front so many people, mm-hmm. and obviously a lot of people there weren't didn't come just to watch um, or listen to poetry. So I knew that a lot of people are not interested in poetry and you've got some people who appreciate it. So I was nervous about that, like people might not <laughs> might not listen. Yeah. And But um, I just feel like as, when you write something that you believe in, everything else becomes not important. Uh, everything around you, it's... That's why I always say do, do things that you believe in, write about things that you believe in because that passion and that belief will come through and pe- you know you'll have readers who believe you and i i've seen that like i've tried to write about something that i don't believe in and i can't i struggle mm-hmm. so um no it wasn't never never and i really enjoyed it Good. and um yeah it sounds like you found your voice yeah um so yeah without further ado we will uh, uh hear some of your poetry interference In flesh, I am awake. I am moving, but I have no choice but to travel with the speed of the wind and the speed of the warplanes that fly over our skies. I'm alive as I engrave in tears, and tomorrow could be the end of this chapter. But I will carry on till this pen leaks through my veins. I the victim that writes, I, the pen that writes, I, a sham that carves tears waiting to drop at sea. But don't forget my mental state, because you can't see it does not mean it's not happening. It is all up there, reflecting in my eyes, yearning for our freedom. I hold it. I hold it, our freedom. The freedom that was tarnished by Western and Eastern interference and No matter how many times I erase these bad memories, the ones that grip around my neck and press against my chest. I'm finding it hard to breathe and pull me out. I need to breathe a little more to say much more. So much to say I don't have much space. My mind is occupied. I'm a busy human being finding ways to survive. It is what we do. It is the norm that lives on the land that I walk in. Remember, I the victim that writes, you that follows the pen that writes. Remember my childhood memories because I seem to forget I fail. 
Insanity began before I entered the outer world, a world of responsibility and consequences. And I'm tired in a world that does not understand. I always dreamt to live amongst the stars, but today, today I beg to live with the stars. And as I write in darkness, I hope my words are clear, because the heart refuses to lie. But share my story, let my words flow like the rivers of dreams, and let my words reach the ears that know little. And let my words reach the hearts that have become disheartened. And let my words soften the hearts that have ignored the tongue that sacrificed the voice for your freedom. The freedom of dropping prices of oil that was sucked from the pipes of the land that I once lived in. Death is upon us all. We all die. But death knocked on our door when we were looking. And our death was caused by human interference as they wormed their fingers in in a box that never prohibited their existence, but welcomed them to a land with human arms, and time and time again, we have accepted the refugees that knocked on our door. But today, today no one opened their doors for us in return. Did they not remember their history? Did they not know? I never wanted to travel, I mean run away from my home, but what can one do? What can a child do? What can I do? They told us to fight back, fight the enemy that breastfeeds from the west and the other clings on to the east. But I mean the doors are locked. And as they hid behind our doors, they peeked from the keyhole as we burned to ashes. But you see, my voice was saved. Saved as it follows the pen of the victim that writes. But I mean one day, one day, that day will come. Okay, that's our poetry episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Andrew and our wonderful readers. Next week, we're going to be discussing screenwriting. Yeah, we've got an interview next week with screenwriter Tom Bidwell, who wrote the series My Mad Fat Diary, and is also working on a Netflix adaptation of Watership Down. Yep, so stay subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, like us on Facebook, where we are the Final Word Podcast, and follow us on Twitter as well. See you next week.